Is the book of Revelation a blessing? Don't lie. <laughs> no. Yeah, I was actually, this, this past week I was in Wichita and I asked that question. They were like, yes! And I'm like, you're lying. <laughs> because we don't, we don't treat Revelation like it's a blessing. Like, I mean, I traveled all around the world speaking on this book. And never once have I walked up to somebody and I'm like, what do you think of the book of Revelation? And then be like, it's a blessing. Like, normally it's stuff like, that book's psychotic. It is so weird. Like Martin Luther, you know, you know Martin Luther, the one that, you know, the reformer, 15, 1600s, who nailed the 95 theses on the wall, Catholic Church, Reformation, you guys following me? He went to kick Revelation out of the Bible. He said, if it's called Revelation, it should actually reveal something. He said, but I look at the book and I don't even sense the spirit. To which I respond, well, at least he's being honest. At least he's saying out loud what a lot of us are afraid to say out loud. But practically speaking, we still believe. Because let's be honest, most of us, the crispest pages in our Bible are the book of Revelation. We don't touch that sucker. And, and I, I have dedicated my entire academic career to this book, but let me be honest with you. It is stinking weird. Like this book, you have, you have beasts coming out of the sea, you have Jesus being a circus sword swallower, and, and you have a dragon trying to eat a baby. Like where else in the Bible do we have stuff like that? The book of Revelation is strange, and yet what I find even more strange is that it's the only book in the entire Bible that claims to be a blessing to those that read it. Isn't that interesting? Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, Revelation thinks it's a blessing, but we don't treat it that way. As a matter of fact, either we ignore it, or some people completely obsess over it, and both extremes are unhealthy. And both extremes very rarely are put into a position to agree with verse 3. A blessing? I've even had somebody come up to me and say, I'll be honest with you. I don't want Jesus to come back because when I read about it in Revelation, it is so terrifying. No, Revelation is not something we usually treat as a blessing. The question is why? Like where's the disconnect? Because Revelation promises a blessing, but we don't seem to receive Revelation as a blessing. Revelation creates more chaos than peace and blessing. I think there's a lot of reasons for why there's, there's this breakdown, why it is that we can't receive it as a blessing. But I think one of the key reasons is we don't know how to define the word prophecy. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why Revelation's not a blessing, but we don't understand the definition of the word prophecy, and that's where we really, really start to derail this whole blessing train. And Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 brings up the word itself. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Usually, usually, if we're going to define the word prophecy, it'll go something like this. Prophecy equals prediction. Have you, have you ever heard somebody or, you know, give that type of a definition? Not you, but have you heard somebody else? Am I being unfair or is that a typical way of defining this word? 
It's, it's typical, right? Even if you Google the word prophecy, and careful when you do, because there'll be millions of websites, and usually they're all just as frightening as the book itself. Let me just say it that way. But if you click on five or six of those websites, what you find is, even if they don't say it, they're using the same definition for prophecy. Prophecy equals prediction. Now, I'm a Bible college prof, and so I'm always going to ask this nerdy question. Sorry. But if we're going to use biblical words, shouldn't we allow the Bible to define the word we're using? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I appreciate the enthusiasm, but frankly, sometimes it doesn't even cross our mind. We're just using the word prophecy like we know what's happening, and the Bible's going, um, I, I have a definition. We're like, it's okay, Bible. I've already got it figured out. Like, but the Bible has a definition for the word. It just, it doesn't follow our assumption, which is the reason why the Bible sometimes can't get a word in edgewise. But I teach my students this all the time. I say, listen, if you take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. And you can probably make a lot of money doing it. Or at least have a movie that Nicolas Cage starts in, stars in, you know. Um, but... Uh, what I did was this, is I decided, you know what, I'm going to have the Bible define the term for me. So I looked up the word prophecy, prophesy, and to prophesy. All three. Whether we're talking Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, I looked up all three of them. It's not just a couple of times, so I can't put it on the screen. Hundreds of times. And this was the question I asked. When prophecy, prophesy, or to prophesy is being used, is there a prediction in the context? That's the question I asked. And this is what I found. There is a prediction in the context 17% of the time. Let that sink in a minute. That means 83% of the time that prophecy, prophesying to prophesy is being used, it's not in the context of a prediction at all. And yet, <laughs> for us, prophecy equals prediction. Well, 17% of the time, but the other 83% of the time, it's got a bigger target in mind. There's just something greater in God's sight than merely being a cosmic fortune teller in the sky. I'll give you a hint. The target might be you. But, but we'll get there in a minute. I, I still want to play with this idea of prophecy equals prediction. It, it gets a little strange whenever we have prediction be the definition of prophecy when we read verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. I have no idea why the NIV 2011 decided to translate that Greek word take to heart. It's, it's weird. I don't even know what that means. It's like take to heart. Like show me what that looks like. Like, oh, oh, I'll put it near my heart. Like, is this like a, you know, cowardly lion thing? Like, or I mean, is it a tin man? Or I, I don't know what's happening. The Greek word literally means heed, obey. Blessed are those who hear it and obey what is written in it. That's what it means. So here's my question. How do you obey a prediction? You know, like somebody comes up to me and they're like, Shane, you're going to die this coming Thursday. Obey this prediction. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, be a little more careless when I cross the street? Like, what am I, what, what am I being called to? <laughs> or somebody comes up and they're like, listen, there's going to be a massive earthquake in California this next week. Obey this prediction. Like, what am I supposed to do? Go to California and jump? Like, 
maybe this will help. Maybe this will... If, if prophecy equals prediction, and it's calling us to obey, it kind of has a little bit of a dissonance in it. But my goodness, if you take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say anything you want. But when you keep the Bible in context, it might actually guide you to a deeper target. Let me just kind of press pause real quick for what we're going through, and let me just do this. Every time I speak anywhere on Revelation, I always give this plea. Please, stop predicting. Please, church. Please, Christians, stop predicting. In my notes, I have a a website of a a non-Christian who has actually cataloged every single one of the failed predictions of Jesus' second coming over the last 150 years. And the message, the underlying message is this. If they keep getting the second coming wrong, they're probably getting the first coming wrong too. Can we please stop predicting? (laughs) It's not helping our witness. And frankly, it even goes against the biblical precedent. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, talking about the second coming. Listen to what Jesus says. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Oh, but I do. No, you don't. I've literally had people say, well, I may not be able to know about the day or hour, but I can know the month and the year. Are you kidding me? That's what Jesus is saying. No, he says about the day or hour, no one knows, and he makes it worse. Not even the angels in heaven. Not even the son, but only the father. So let me, let me change my plea. Stop trying to outdo Jesus. He didn't know when he was coming back, and you don't either, okay? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, hits the same point. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How do thieves come? <laughs> yeah, do they schedule an appointment? Like, I'm going to rob your home at 10.30. Is that good for your schedule? (laughs) No, the point of a thief is they come unexpectedly. You cannot predict it. So the underlying command is, so always be ready. Part of the reason why I think we take the book of Revelation and we force it to talk only about the future is because we don't want to stare into the mirror of our own disobedience in the present. And this book... If you let it talk, it will confront you in ways that you're just not comfortable with. My wife's joked with me at times because I've written a couple of books on this. I've gotten a couple of degrees because of this book. And she's like, you do know there's other books in the Bible, right? I'm like, I know. I, I know. But the book of Revelation has grabbed a hold of me and it just won't let me go. Because every time I stare into the face of this word... It challenges me to be someone different. And that's what prophecy is supposed to do. I know some of you at this point, you're like, okay, hippie. Like, I know prophecy is not prediction, but but you've got to tell me what prophecy is. What is it? Great question, Uh, which reminds me, another commercial. Um, October 13th at 6 p.m. in the chapel, we're going to have an hour, hour and a half question answer time on the book of Revelation. I'm going to be in there, and you guys can just bring your questions like arrows and just shoot them at me, and we'll just see what happens. But I actually love Q&A times like that because when you're up here preaching, we tell you what we think you should know. 
But in Q&A times, you tell me what it is you want to know. And I find those far more fruitful, not just for you, but for me, because I usually always learn something whenever I'm in a question and answer time. So 6 p.m. October 13th, gear up your questions and sling them at me, and we'll have a good time, at least from my perspective, okay? <laughs> if prophecy isn't a prediction, then what is it? Then what is it? Here, let me tell you prophecy's purpose. The purpose of prophecy is to prosecute and persuade a rebellious people. Let that sink in a minute. The purpose of a prophecy is to prosecute and persuade a rebellious people. And all prophets are the same. I mean, think about Daniel or Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. When were they prophesying? Either right before or during the Babylonian exile. That moment when the nation of Israel was removed from the promised land because of their disobedience. That's when prophets, that's when prophets show up on the scene. To prosecute and persuade a rebellious people. Which means every prophecy is demanding a response from the audience. From the reader. It expects that you're going to change after reading it. It expects that you're going to do something different. Now, at times, prophecy uses prediction, but it is always in service of this greater purpose. Like, prediction does happen in prophecy 17% of the time. But the purpose of prophecy is to transform the reader, and that is the 83% of the goal. But we've got the ratio flipped. We think it's 83% prediction, 17% of application. No. Prophets don't function like that. They never have, and regardless of how much we want them to, they never will. Now, that's the purpose, but that's not a definition. So let me give you a definition that zooms in a little bit closer on what prophecy is. Prophecy is a revelation about God, or from God, that reveals three things. Who God is, what God desires, and what God demands from his people. God sends his prophets to come to his rebellious people, some of which have completely compromised, others of which are holding on by a thread. And he calls them to repentance. He calls them to pledge allegiance to him by revealing who he is, what God desires, and what he demands of his people. And you see this, what I wanna do is I wanna take these three lenses and put it on the book of Revelation. And you see the first lens of who God is in the very first verse. Like Revelation begins going, I'm going to talk about these three things. Let's begin talking about the identity of God, who God is. The first five words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Anytime you get confused in the book of Revelation, remember the first five words. It's about Jesus. It comes back to him. And it's amazing how often that we have revelation be about everything but the revelation of Jesus Christ. No, it's about him. And you are going to see over these next eight weeks some of the most vivid depictions of Christ in the entire Bible. We've already looked at one in chapter one where he has this robe and a golden sash and his eyes are like blazing fire. In chapter five, we're gonna see another image of Jesus. John is weeping, and an elder comes along and puts his arm on his, on his shoulder and says, don't, don't cry, don't cry. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in chapter 5, John looks, and what does he see? Do you know this story? 
What does he see? A lamb standing as if it had been slain. Once we keep going, chapter 14, you see Jesus harvesting the earth with 144,000 on Mount Zion, this picture of heaven. In chapter 19, you see the majestic white rider on the horse victoriously marching with his army to a victory parade. And what's fascinating is every clear depiction of Jesus in the book of Revelation always comes right before or right after terrible tragedy. Intense moments of turmoil. Always, always. Right before or right after those incredibly difficult moments, you have a depiction of Jesus. That might be good advice for your own life. That when you're in the midst of those turmoils, just look just before and just after and realize there's a picture of Jesus that's right there that's going to bring clarity to your situation. But we have to begin with who God is. And chapter one just beats this drum over and over and over. Verse four, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. I I do need to stop there and say this, this is important. This book was written to real people at a real time, at a real place, going through real issues. Can we please allow it to apply to them first before we rip it away from the first century and into the 21st century? It was written to a people that were going through real issues. If I was going to describe, summarize, the situation of the Christians in the first century that were receiving the book of Revelation, it would be with the singular word conflict. Conflict. They were caught in this incredibly tense time of conflict. Conflict with them and the Jews of the Roman Empire. The Jews of the Roman Empire at this time were going through a big, big deal, big problem. The current emperor, his family was the one responsible for destroying the temple in Jerusalem. And they put it on all their coins and all their architecture bragging that we destroyed the Jews. And if that's what's on their billboards, how do you think the Jews are actually being treated? It was terrifying. The Jews were getting so attacked by the Roman Empire that what they started doing was they would say, instead of hitting us here, here's a Christian. They're kind of like a Jew. Hit them. And Romans were like, well, we can't tell the difference. So the Christians were caught in this tension. The Roman Empire was no better to them, even if they knew what the Christians were dealing with. It was at this time that this emperor Domitian actually put out an edict that whether you are speaking or you're writing, you must refer to him as our Lord and our God. And for the Christians, they're like, well, that's a problem. And at times, this tension escalated to the point where Christians were being killed. It escalated to the point where at times Christians were being beaten, or if they were lucky, like John, I guess they were just exiled to an island. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, John says, I was on the island of Patmos because of my preaching. They're in, a, they're in a context of conflict. And now the last living apostle has been exiled to an island for preaching the word. And it looks like Rome is winning. And some of the Christians are saying, well, I might as well get on the side of the winning team. Because it looks like that this is ending. I thought Jesus' kingdom was reigning but it doesn't look like he is actually reigning. And they had no way to envision that 2,000 years from now we were going to be singing songs about Jesus being king of kings because the emperor seemed like the one that was actually ruling all the kingdoms. 
That's who this book is written to. And by God's grace, we get to overhear the conversation between these churches and their minister. So if you don't apply the book of Revelation to their context first, you're taking the Bible out of context and you're doing whatever you want with it. Why do we do that? So we can predict. No, no, let it stay there. It will apply to you, I promise. Just not the way you think. Let's keep reading, verse four. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and is to come. You notice in what he's doing. He's giving an identification of God the Father. As a matter of fact, that phrase, who was and is and is to come, that will come up multiple times in the book of Revelation. We'll see it in chapter 4 with the four living creatures surrounding the throne, crying out day and night without uh, without ceasing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It's emphasizing God's eternality. The first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He is eternal. And guess what? That's not something Rome could claim. Because Rome had a beginning, 753 BCE. And Revelation says, and Rome will have an end just like every other empire. Just like every one of them. But our God? He is eternal. It's reminding the Christians of who they serve. Let's keep reading. And from the seven spirits before his throne. Don't, Don't freak out when you come to numbers in the book of Revelation. They don't work the way that your mind typically works in the Western world. We usually like to measure numbers in Revelation. They weigh numbers. They have a symbolic weight to them. Now, we do this too. We just just don't pay attention that we're doing it. We did it this past week. Nine, 11. Is there weight to those numbers? It's not like I just skipped 10. No, there is a weight to those numbers and we feel it, especially those of us that were alive When 9-11 happened, you remember where you were. You remember how you felt. You remember the fear that it was induced after that moment. Those numbers have a weight to them. And the Jews were no different, especially the number seven. Oh, man, they loved the number seven. The number seven comes to us in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter one. What seven am I referring to there? Creation, the seven days of creation. Does it surprise you then that the Jews, when they used the number seven, they were always referring to a completeness usually attached to creative acts? Where do they get that? Genesis chapter one, where God created, well, technically he created in six days, right? But he adds a seventh. And it's not because that God gets to the seventh day and he's like, I'm just so tired, forget it. I, I'm done creating. We'll just, we'll just call this the Sabbath and, and we'll just make people obey it. Like, no, he gets to the seventh because seventh is true completion. I was reading a book this past week and it talked about how we need both the sixth and the seventh. The sixth days of work to remind us that we are in partnership with God to fulfill his will. But the seventh day reminds us that all is grace, that he doesn't need us at all to accomplish his purposes. It's a number of completion, usually attached to the creative act. So whenever we see the seven spirits before the throne, don't sit there and go, oh my goodness, we all of a sudden have nine persons in the Trinity because the spirit apparently is seven. No, relax. It's the complete spirit of God that is looking to create something. And that's what the spirit does, but we'll talk about that more in a bit. Verse five, and from Jesus Christ, 
who is the faithful witness. Now, that's actually code language for the cross. That word witness in the Greek is actually where we get the English word martyr, someone who dies for their testimony to Jesus. Faithful witness is used one other time in the book of Revelation. It's chapter 2, verse 13. For a Christian by the name of Antipas, that in the city of Pergamum, he was killed because of his faith. Faithful witness is a way of saying this. Jesus' death has something to tell us about who he is. And it might be connected to his eternal desire to create something new. Are you seeing how this is building? The faithful witness, the cross. The firstborn from the dead. What's that code for? Yeah, resurrection. Right? Firstborn from the dead. It's telling us that the eternal God is creating something new through the person of Jesus, the cross, resurrection, and the ruler of the kings of the earth is code language for the ascension. For every time the ascension occurs, it's always in the context of establishing a kingdom. The ruler of the kings of the earth. Notice how Revelation begins then. Chapter one is saturated with this central point. We're going to tell you who God is. Why? Because what we need most when we're in situations of turmoil and toil, when we find ourselves in moments of rebellion or we are being tempted to compromise, what we need most is a clear depiction of who God is. The reminder that he is eternal and in control. The reminder that he's creating something new, not just in this world around us, but in you and even in your enemies. A reminder that through the work of Jesus Christ, this sovereign king is making all things new. Which leads me to the second point that prophecy does. What does God desire? Turn to Revelation chapter 21. This is, <laughs> this is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Like, because God is, he is giddy in Revelation 21. Like, you know whenever, like, a kid comes up and they're, they're so excited to tell you something, and they kind of do one of these, like, they're moving their feet, and they tell you the same thing over and over and over. Like, Dad, I went down the slide, and, man, the slide was huge, and I went down the slide, and it was amazing, because whenever I went down the slide, and it's like, okay, you're excited about the slide. I can get it, because you've said it four or five times. God does that here. Listen to him. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21.1. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Where's the voice coming from? From the throne. So who is speaking? God. Listen to what he says. He yells. There's an exclamation point after his first word. He's like, look! Check this out! He's giddy. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. Do you hear him? He's like, oh my gosh, what I desire is happening. I'm with them and they're with me and we're together and we're all hanging out, we're together and I'm with them and they're with me and it's like, okay. God's reminding us of where we're moving, this, this train of blessing. And he is so excited about what it is he's he's envisioning here, inaugurating what it is that is coming through Christ. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There, there may be no more intimate picture than God wiping his tear from, his, from someone's eyes. 
Because it's not just anyone that can wipe the tears from your face. That's reserved for a very special, intimate moment. But here it's God with you. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's why it doesn't surprise me that in chapter 22, when we're looking at this climactic moment of what God desires, that chapter 22, we find ourselves back in the Garden of Eden. What God desired from the very beginning. Chapter 22, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, listen, stood the tree of life. The last time we saw the tree of life was in Genesis chapter 3. And it's bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Did you hear his target? The target is us. The healing of us, the transformation of us. And then he yells out what he's really pointing towards in verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The curse is gone because God's goal, his desire is to set all of the wrongs right, is for Genesis 3 to have not a single victory, to undo all that Satan accomplished whenever we ate from that first tree. And the thing that's really important is to remember, this isn't just what he desires, it's also important to remember who he is because this is the eternal sovereign king. That through the Christ act, the death, resurrection, and ascension, he is creating things new because his spirit has been sent to do it in and through us to ultimately get us to where he desires. And then comes point three. And y'all are probably at this point going like, shoot, I wish he would have stopped after point two. Well, but prophecy doesn't stop after point two. Prophecy says, in light of who God is and what he desires, he demands something from you. In Revelation, whoa, man, Revelation gets rowdy when it comes to what we do. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, five out of the seven churches, he says the exact same thing, I know your deeds. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 to the church of Ephesus, I know your deeds. 2.19, church of Thyatira, I know your deeds. 3, verse 1, to the church of Sardis, I know your deeds. 3, verse 8, to the church of Philadelphia, I know your deeds. 3.15, church of Laodicea, I know your deeds. Now, if you're doing good things for the king, there's nothing sweeter to see in red letters than I know your deeds. It's like, you saw me do that. It's like that little kid that comes home with the, the picture and all they want is for you to look at it and put it on the refrigerator so you can keep looking at it. You know my deeds. If you're rebellious, there's nothing more terrifying to see in red letters. Oh, you, you saw that. Yeah. And Jesus gets a little bit more intense. Verse 2 of chapter 3. Wake up, strengthen what remains that is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. This is one of those, hey, pat on the back, backhand across the face texts. 
says, then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. In the book of Revelation, let me just summarize like this. What you do and what you don't do kind of matters. It's kind of a big deal. Why? No, don't turn this book into legalism. It's actually more deeper than legalism can ever stretch. It's about union with the king. Because in the book of Revelation, who you worship, you become. You look like them. You act like them. You talk like them. And if you are claiming to be a follower of the eternal God, the one that laid his life down on the cross, raised from the dead, and is reigning over the kings of the earth because of his ascension, if you're claiming to be the messenger of the new Jerusalem, then you better be doing the things that that king did that brings about what he desires. And if you're not, that's when the prophecy comes and stares you in the face and says, then change what you're doing. And I know at some point, y'all are like, dang, man. Oh, all this deeds talk is exhausting. Like, I just love Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Like, we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. Man, I love that text too. And it's true that there's only one thing that can save you, and it's the work of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. But you have to read verse 10 of Ephesians 2. The very next verse. (laughs) For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works. Because whenever you're united with the vine, don't be surprised whenever you're producing the fruit that the vine produces. It's about transformation. It's about the spirit recreating in us so that we can actually become the hands and feet of Christ or the body of Christ, as 1 Corinthians 12 says. So some of you at this point, with all this deeds talk, you're probably thinking, okay, now what? Good grief. Oh, I I forgot to read an image in Revelation 1 that brings all of this to a beautiful climax. Revelation chapter 1, John is on the island of Patmos alone. He is struggling because his deeds have actually led him to being exiled. And while he is there worshiping, he is visited by the king. Chapter 1, verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. On the Sunday, I was worshiping. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Verse 12, I turned around to see that w- w- the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Did you hear it? It's super subtle, but it's the, it's the key that unlocks all that we've talked about. I'll read it again. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Did you hear it? Man, we skip over those verses too much because we a lot of times jump right into the fact that he's wearing the robe and the, the golden sash and has eyes like fire and he's got hair white like wool. And But there is a key inside of verse 13 
that not only clarifies who God is and what he desires, but it actually gives you the ability to respond to what he demands. And the key is articulated in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And where did we see Jesus walking in verse 13? Among the lampstands. Among us. He's present among us. If you believed that, would it change what you were doing? Would it change the things you were saying about the worship set or the person sitting down the pew from you? That If Jesus was really walking amongst the lampstands and you truly believed it, would it change the way you function? Not just in this room, but every single day? I know your deeds, he whispers. I tell you one thing, if you're in a situation of turmoil or struggle where the diagnosis isn't what you expected, things would change the way you respond to it if you believed he was walking amongst the lampstands. You see, the book of Revelation gives us a clear depiction of who Jesus is because in this messed up world that claims to be the right way, the normal way of living, you not only will experience it as if it's upside down, but you will experience the same suffering that Christ experienced when he came to this world, even though you're working for it to be redeemed. But don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of the fact that he's walking among the lampstands. I want to end by doing something that they would have done in the first century. You see, most of the people in the first century were illiterate. And so Christians would not, that received the book of Revelation, most of them wouldn't have read it like we're reading it today. Most of them would have sat in the room and had their eyes closed, and as the images were read aloud, they would have experienced the blessing of encountering Christ beyond what words can hold. That's why in Revelation 1-3, it blesses the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, because most of them couldn't read it. So I want you to close your eyes. And I want to read over each of us with our eyes closed this picture of Christ asking the question how does revelation become a blessing I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned around I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man and he was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest and the hair on his head was white like wool, as, as, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
then he placed his right hand on me. And he said, don't be afraid. Because I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but look, now I am alive forever and ever. Maybe now revelation can start to become a blessing.